You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hey, 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 and greetings, listeners. You're tuned in to episode 12 of Fly on the Call, Candid Conversations on Music. Today's guest is Alex Leckman of Death is a Business, a self-described heavy metal band with an identity crisis. The band has been around in various forms since 2013 and just released their debut full-length, Not Infinite, on Halloween. The album has been in the works for close to five years, with many collaborators and recording sessions coming together throughout that time. In this conversation, Alex and I discuss the process, the need for community, artistic value, and a whole lot more. So let's run the theme music and get things started. at a magazine where I cover drug policy. Uh, just came off of a big drug policy conference last week in St. Louis. So we're trying to do a, a lot of coverage uh, around that event. Oh, cool, cool. So I'm curious, like now that the album's out and stuff, like what have you been like working on with the band lately? So actually, actually uh, thing, things are happening very much in real time. Uh, today's Tuesday, so yesterday on Monday, um, we announced an event, uh, a launch party for the album that's going to be in uh, December, December 6th. Um, but it's a lot more than a launch party, actually. It's it's going to be, um, it's something that I've been wanting to do for a long time, and now I have the chance to do it. It's a celebration of New York's artists and activist communities so, um, you know, basically we're going to have a live round table of local um, artists and activists and then the and then they're going to perform in a live music showcase. And, you know, I, I am included amongst them mm-hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm co-organizing this event, some treats and uh, psychedelic arts. You know, we're going to have vendors for guests to like engage with. And we're also going to have on site um, drug overdose prevention training so we're we're going to be training guests and how to use naloxone or narcan mm-hmm. um which in case you which in case you don't know it's it's the antidote to an opioid overdose um so this you know the, this this event uh is going to be a very a very special coming together of a lot of you know a lot of different uh facets of my career and community that are mm-hmm. important to me yeah for sure yeah i'm i actually uh, my job is I do like that entry for an ambulance billing company. So I definitely, I'm very familiar with Narcan. I, unfortunately, there's a, a lot of those types of calls that I have to enter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a huge, it's obviously a huge issue here in New York city. Um, we have, you know, uh, drug overdose deaths, uh, mostly from 
fentanyl contamination of just like the whole illicit drug supply, even even stuff like cocaine, methamphetamine, MDMA, you know, most people think it's just something that's found in heroin, but it's something that's being found in like most any drug now. So, you know, it's, it's really important for people in the community to be informed about how to use Narcan and just to sort of combat the stigma around, you know, people using drugs and that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the whole idea of you like planning that event, like kind of shows how um, like, connected you are with the kind of community around, like you said, like the music art and art scene. Um, could you talk a little bit about like that and like, kind of how you've found your place in there and how it uh, affects the band and stuff? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I actually want to reference again the, the event, the conference I was at last week. So the reason, like really the, the impetus behind this event is, so I've kind of had, you know, for like over 10 years, on my feet in two different worlds. There's been the music world, and then there's been the world of, um, you know, political activism. And these are, you know, both things that are very, and actually, you know, I got into, um, you know, I got into specifically drug policy um, activism or advocacy through music, you know, through learning about the history of American pop music and the counterculture movement and psychedelics and the war on drugs. So, you know, the two of them are very much uh, tied together for me. But um, to make it real simple, you know, I realized through performing shows here in New York City that the music community, it, you know, the music scene is just way too insular. You know, everyone is just very individualistic, focused on their own thing, just trying to get fans. You know, it's very cutthroat. It's, it's just the doggy dog um, music scene. But, and then on the other hand, you know, the world of political activism and advocacy has a lot of its own problems. And, you know, just, I, I think that there's, um, you know, th there's a tendency to become hyper-focused on policy and legislation and leave out uh, things like music and community and culture and the things that like really bring people together. You know, music brings people together and helps people find common ground like almost nothing else. So, um, you know, to bring it to, so for the event that we're doing, this, this is our way of trying to, bit, to bridge those gaps mm. and to, you know, bring those communities together and help them kind of exchange ideas. I think I read that like the uh, live record you did last year kind of came in a similar way through like um, you performing at like a cannabis uh, convention or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, could you talk a little about like that record? And um, I know there were like a, a bunch of different musicians featured on that and on the new record as well. But um, could you talk a little about like how all that stuff kind of comes together for you? Sure. Um, so I think really uh, to, to make to make it really simple, um, the live album that we did last year um, kind of, it, I, I think, for me, the reason that record is special to me is that that, that was kind of putting on wax um, a, a, a music, you know, a, a community of musicians that, that, I, that I feel like I've helped cultivate here in New York City, just, you know, amongst my friends and different artists and bands that I've been playing with and, um, you know, house parties, uh, house parties and other events that we've been putting on together. So, um that like the the thing that's the most important to me about that record is it it was a way for me to 
bring together, you know, a, a, a cast of different artists, singers and musicians who've all maybe played, known each other, been a part of different communities. But, you know, that was my way of, of bringing everyone together under one roof to do to make this collaborative live live album in my basement. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and like even even now, you know, less than a year later, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, communities don't communities aren't always, um, you know, don't don't always stick around. And, you know, mu music scenes are, are constantly changing. And, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of a lot of the relationships um, that, that came together uh, for that record, you know, maybe have drifted apart or, or maybe, you know, the some of the artists haven't kept up with each other. But, um, you know, I, I, I wanted I wanted to capture that moment in time and mm -hmm. have it serve, I, I guess, have, you know, kind of show like a, a different model of making music together amongst different artists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, like you mentioning kind of like scenes and communities changing all the time. Um, I think it's, it's it's interesting how, like you said, that's kind of like a picture of one point in time. But um, the the new record kind of took, you know, like five years plus to put together. Um, so it's, you know, a very different kind of uh, snapshot in that way. Um, how has that kind of that process of and so much time like affected kind of the finished product and how you like view it now? Well, it's, it's funny um, because it's, it's new music technically because, you know, mo you know, if, if you're going to search up the album on Spotify, it's the first time you're hearing it. <laughs> but for me, you know, the, the new album, not infinite, it's very old music at this point because the it was written between the years 2011 and 2014 so like literally between the time i was in high school to the end of my first year in college um so in in a sense like the album is is kind of a historical relic um you know it's it, it captures a period of time between when i was you know a teenager and um you know and move, moving out of uh, moving out of New Jersey, where, where I was raised, to New York to start, you know, this new journey. Um, so, you know, ly lyrically, it, it's kind of a it's kind of a relic. But I think musically, um, you know, the 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 music definitely changed a lot um, over over the course of five years. You know, because basically, I had to record the album twice. The first time we didn't we didn't make it through, and the second time that's what you're now hearing. Um, and the there was just a constantly changing array of session musicians, singers, you know, and yeah, the, there was um, you know there was a lot of turnover in the you know the uh, the lineup of mm -hmm. that that it took to make the album, and. And all all of the different musicians that I played the music with over the years, through those different jams and through those different performances, the music evolved over time. So that's you know that that's how I guess in a way it it's musically it's more forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That, that definitely makes sense. Um, and you had mentioned uh, like recording it almost twice, and I know the first time. It was basically like scrapped. Um, can you tell me about like kind of like the, what happened around that? 
Sure. And I also just uh, want, want to briefly say that um, I, I go into uh, sort of this history and backstory in the digital booklet for the album and listeners can just get that by joining our email list and they'll, they'll get a password and it's uh, hosted on our website. But so, yeah, what happened with the, I guess the first production was that was between 2014 and 2016. And I had partnered up at my college and it, the ultimately the production fell apart because of a work of a working dispute between myself and them. Um, we got, you know, th there was an issue about um, that we wanted to re-record the drums and there was, you know, basically a disagreement over how to do that and what the cost of that would be. And, uh, you know, I, I also like, I, I, I want to be honest. Um, I think looking back, uh, you know, I, I, I might, I probably would have handled that situation a little differently than I would have now. Um, I think, I think there was definitely mistakes that were made on all sides, uh, you know, throughout that process. And, uh, and, and, and that, and that's kind of the other, you know, like the most important thing that I learned throughout the whole five year process of making this album was I really learned the value of my work and the value of another musician's work and just, you know, how to more, more important than the process of writing a song and recording an album was I learned how to actually work and get something done, you know, with limited budget with limited resources and how to, you know, m make people feel like their input and their work and their contribution is respected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, and going back to the, the idea of like the community, like that's obviously such an important thing in that as well. So it makes sense that kind of like all those pieces like came together for you. And, and you mentioned like the idea of kind of like putting things together on a, a limited budget and stuff. And, um, like the video for River Sticks is like super in depth, and I'm sure like for anyone making a music video for like a seven plus minute song is uh, kind of daunting. Um, but like, could you talk a little bit about like the process of putting that together? Sure. So um, I I have to give uh, you know I have to give a huge amount of credit um, to the to the production team that worked with me on that, which actually started all which also started way back in. I guess 2015 while I was still in college and I met um, Jacques Nerpo, who was, you know, a, um, a classmate, a classmate of mine. We were working in the, in the college, uh, in the, in the gym together in the weight rooms. Um, and that, and then years later that materialized into the production for this video. Um, and so basically, you know, myself and Jacques we assembled the team. Um, I, one of the one of the rappers on the live album, um, his cinematographer, whose name is Teddy Cruz, ended up being our cinematographer for this project. Um, and then um, Jochner brought in uh, two of his other um, collaborators, uh, Crystal Jefferson and uh, Raquel Reyes, who did the makeup and yeah, she did the makeup and the uh, special effects design for the video and. And then I, I helped bring in the uh, the team of actors, and we just did it. Um, we had you know we had several production meetings throughout the spring where we developed the the idea for the story, um, and you know developed you know how where we would shoot it and what time of day we would shoot it, um, 
you know, luckily Raquel was able to get um, some, some very nice equipment um, because she works at the college, uh, like film department. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I had a, I had a good friend from New Jersey, uh, Sierra Hudson, who was able to drive in and uh, lend us her car and also serve as a stunt double <laughs> for the scenes with the car. Jochner uh, sat in the trunk of the car with the camera to film me running down Broadway in, uh, you know, in East New York and Brooklyn. So like in the middle of traffic. So yeah, it just, I, I, I think just overall, the music video came together through, you know, some careful planning and preparation and just using, you know, using whatever resources we had available. We, we honestly made it for almost nothing. Like I, I literally spend about a hundred dollars to make the video. Um, <laughs> which, you know, I, I, I really think I got away. I think we got away with murder on that, but, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's just what I would say, you know, to, I guess to any young creator, um, you know, you, you have to, you know, when you're starting out, you, you have to use what's available. You have to use your network. You have to use your friends, um, you have to, you know, you just have to try to do a lot with, with very little because, you know, you, cause you don't have any funding, you don't have a record label or a production company or anything behind you. Yeah. And you had mentioned like the digital booklet a little while ago and which is also like really well put together, similar to the video. Um, and can you talk about a little bit about like that drive that you have and kind of like the mindset be, be, um, behind like how you present yourself? Sure. So, I mean, when, when I think about, uh, you know, my trajectory in my music career and where I want to get to, um, I, you know, I, I jokingly say that there, there's two people that I really have in mind and, you know, two things I want to accomplish is I, I, I want to bring my mom, I want to bring my mother home a Grammy award someday, <laughs> uh, just because I feel like that's the only the only aspect of the music that's the only metric of success in the music industry that she would easily understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know it would make her really proud. And then, and then I, I also want to bring a Grammy award back to my, my high school cross country and track and field coach, uh, Mr. Osen, who I remember when, when I was, when I was in high school and, and even after I graduated high school and I told him that I wanted to pursue a career in music he gave me as harsh an assessment as could po- <laughs> as could possibly have been given. He he basically I, I basically said to you know he basically said uh you know you know music you know you can't go anywhere in music you can't go anywhere as a guitarist. And I said, but what if I what if I was a virtuoso guitarist like Eddie Van Halen? Would you be giving me the same advice? And he said, yeah, but you're not Eddie Van Halen, so I wouldn't give you that advice. <laughs> And at the, at the time, it seemed at the time, it seemed like really rude for him to say that. But honestly, looking back on it now, I kind of wonder if he was just doing reverse psychology on me and if he was just trying to give me the harshest possible assessment to motivate me because it definitely has motivated me. So, um, yeah, I, I guess just to, to sum it up, um, you know, and, and to tie it back to, to the whole activism thing of music to bring people together and to be a catalyst for positive change in the world and yeah I just it's it's something that I've dedicated myself to for better or worse and I just I I just at the moment I I don't see myself 
doing anything else in the long term. So um, I guess that's what motivates my, you know, decision making to to try to go as 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 hard as I can with it. For sure. Yeah. And um, it was funny, you kind of you saying like, oh, what if I was a virtuoso like Eddie Van Halen? Um, but like, I feel like a lot of the guitar work, especially on the album is like very like technically proficient and stuff. Um, so can you talk a little bit? I mean, I guess we haven't actually hit specifically on like the music style either. So um, I'm curious about kind of your uh, journey through music and like some of your influences and stuff along the way. Sure. And, uh, and I, I want to take the moment again to, to give credit to a very talented individual. So there's, there's actually two, there's two guitarists on the album. There's myself and there's, uh, there's Zohe Muniz, who was an, another kid that I met at college. Um, so if you, if you listen to the solos on the album, some of the kind of bluesier, um, more classic rock inspired solos, those are mine. But then the the really like shreddy um neoclassical you know kind of sounding solos th- those are zohabe so we you know we have we have both sides of that uh throughout the record now as far as uh, as far as my guitar playing um you know tony iomi and kirk hammett and uh i guess for more modern influences you know brent hines mastodon um what's it, uh paul 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 wagner uh between the buried and me and some of that stuff but 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 death and and um i also you know i've i've ex- i've uh i've been listening you know in recent years i've been listening to a lot of uh different stuff like you know felix kuti and kendrick lamar and uh you know i, I don't know a- anderson pock or uh you know some classic jazz so um I've been, you know, the, 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 those, those are some of the, I guess, disparate sounds that, that I try to bring uh, in, onto this record and just in, into my music in general. Um, and, so, you know, Zohabe is uh, very, very much a student of, you know, guys like Alexi Lejo, who is, uh, oh, my God, he would kill me if I got this wrong. I can't, <laughs> I can't uh, say the wrong Is Children of Bodom? Is, is he? I, or is he? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess I guess he is. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go with that. Children of Bodom. Uh, but he loves Alexi Leho. He loves um, he loves uh, Sinister Gates. So Habe is uh, very much a, a modern, uh, you know, guitar player stylistically. And you know, he 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 likes to spend his time practicing stuff like eight finger tapping, which. I, I I tip my hat to him for that. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, and I mean you kind of mentioned like a lot of those different influences and the kind of tagline, I guess, in your bio is kind of like heavy metal band with an identity crisis, <laughs> which um, I'm like bringing in, I know in a couple of the songs on the album, there's like horns and stuff like that. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how you kind of like balance those different influences and how you bring all those different collaborators that you have into the process? Um, I don't want to give away too much info just yet, but the next, Death as a Business record is going to have a very different sound um, from this record, and as far as you know, the I guess like the genres of music that you can easily identify. But what I think will be consistent, and I, I think what what listeners will see consistent, uh, and, and also even if you listen to the live record or the Cheers single, um, they both sound very different from this record. 
but mm -hmm. I think what listeners will see consistent throughout all of the death as a business work is, um, you know, just a, a fondness for dynamics. So, you know, when, you know, I, I, I talked to you about my guitar playing influences, but as far as my songwriting influences, um, you know, I was hugely inf influenced by stuff like Pink Floyd and, uh, Yes, and you know a lot, a lot of the classic prog rock stuff, and and then even like later, uh, later in my years, you know, I I really liked uh, artists like Kendrick Lamar, who has a you know he has a very dynamic sound, even though his music obviously sounds totally different from something like Pink Floyd. So I I think for me, um, you know, balancing different influences, you know, managing the identity crisis. Um, the way, the way that I approach that is I just want to create, you know, I think we want to create an experience for listeners where, um, the, you know, within one song, they get taken on a journey. So whether that's over the course of three or four minutes or over the course of 10 or 13 minutes, um, I, you know, I, I want them to, I want them to take this whole roller coaster ride through, uh, these different emotions and moods and tempos. Yeah, I definitely think that's like one of the things that I connect with because I'm not like, you know, typically a super metal guy, but um, like you said, like those dynamics and the, the journey and stuff is definitely something that I connected with. Um, is that you had mentioned earlier um, when we were talking about the community and stuff, how a lot of the stuff in New York is kind of like a little bit like doggy dog and like kind of uh, with the process, like with the goal of just like getting as many fans as possible does that like pull you in different directions as far as like musically versus like commercially so i think so you know what what i will say what i will say about new york is i think um i think i think new york has definitely influenced me musically um it's it's obviously a super diverse city um, you know, I've, I've been exposed to all different kinds of music since I've been here, stuff like hip hop, stuff like salsa, bachata, uh, Afrobeat, um, you know, uh, bossa nova, Brazilian music. I mean, I, my, mo my mother is Brazilian, but funnily enough, it wasn't until I moved to New York that I actually started being around Brazilian music. <laughs> um, so, so all, you know, like all, all of that is, and, and obviously just the, you know, the people who you know, are, are more diverse than in any other major city. So all, I think all of that has definitely shaped me as a musician and as an artist. And to your question about, uh, you know, about, um, about managing, I guess, you know, from, from a business perspective uh, about how to gain fans and build an audience in New York. Um, I, think, I think the thing that I want to say about that is that there's a huge tension uh, as a, you know that you face as an artist in New York because you want you want to be um, you know you want to be creative and you want to you want to just do whatever you want and not necessarily worry about how commercially viable it is mm -hmm. but but you know you you have to you have to put a roof over your head you have to pay your rent uh, which is very expensive so <laughs> you have to, yeah you like there there is there is a pressure to uh, you know, if, if you're going to be successful as, you know, as a musician, no less in the city, you have to develop a, a broader audience. So, um, but, but I don't, you know, you, you could, you could read that in a cynical way. You know, there's, there, there's, there's very much a stigma in the rock and metal communities against selling out. 
Um, but I think, I think the concept of selling out as an artist or as a musician is inherently subjective. Um, you know, some, some people might have told me years ago that, you know, me being a metal artist would be selling out by having songs with rapping or by, you know, um, by like dressing a, a certain way, you know, to appeal to more people, but, or, or, or by, you know, having softer vocals to try to appeal to more people. But for me, I think my goal as an artist is to, is to, is to try to reach as broad and as diverse uh, a range of audiences as possible. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, I, I think that's also a part of the identity crisis behind the music. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that definitely makes sense. And I, I feel like, you know, like you said, the whole concept of like selling out is kind of very, like you said, subjective and like outdated in a way, kind of like, as long as you're like staying true to yourself and kind of following what, like your own inspiration and stuff it's like that's kind of the most important thing and I, I like I love like the genre blending that has become a lot more popular like in the last few years and stuff like it's brought me to so many different kinds of music that I might not necessarily have listened to otherwise and like really opened me up to a lot more kinds of things so like I definitely like I like that stuff a lot <laughs> um and then, I mean, I guess hitting on a couple of like the songs specifically, um, I feel like your kind of like lyric style is um, very, it's uh, not as literal as a lot of the music that I listen to, but um, probably like Familiar Streets seems to be like the most like literal one, um, talking about like your childhood home and um, it being foreclosed on and stuff. Um, so could you tell me a little bit about like the kind of story behind that one? Yes. Um, so familiar. So when I was, how old was I? Um, when I was 15, I, yeah, when I, when I was 15 years old, so this was uh, while I was still in high school in New Jersey, um, our house was foreclosed on um, because of, uh, I'll just say because of financial regularities, um, there, there was uh you know, th there was some things being done um, that should not have been done. And unfortunately, it, um, you know, it's it dissolved uh, my parents' relationship, you know, their marriage, um, you know, it kind of broke the family apart a little bit. Uh, we all ended up moving out of that. So this was in Hopatcong, New Jersey, uh, which is a town in Sussex County. Um, we all ended up moving. So it was, you know, myself, uh, my older brother, Danny, uh, my oldest sister, Natalia, and my two parents. Uh, one by one, we all ended up moving out of that house. My mom was the first to leave. Um, she got an apartment in Netcong, New Jersey, which is a couple of towns over. Uh, I, I definitely had a lot of resentment uh, and anger towards her for doing that. Uh, about a year or so later, my dad, who had been unemployed for almost that whole time uh ended up moving uh he got a new job in in raleigh north carolina so he moved down there uh he's been there ever since Th this was uh 2012 hmm. um and then my my sister uh my sister left uh to go move in with my mom so it, and so there was a period of time where it was just myself and my brother danny in the house and and then eventually we when we moved out you know completely and we moved in with my mom so that's, you know, that's kind of uh, the summation of that story. In, in February 2013, uh, my brother committed suicide. 
which is also the subject of the, you know, the song A Mother's Touch. Uh, and then, you know, that, that was it during my senior year of high school. And then obviously I graduated and moved to New York. Uh, so, you know, all, all of that is what that song Familiar Streets is about. It's, it's about that whole uh, years long process of physically moving out of the house, but then also physically moving out of New Jersey to a new city and then kind of spiritually um, losing, uh, losing touch with, uh, you know, the people and place that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like now that you're kind of far, farther removed from that than you were like when you wrote the song, like how has that, how has your like interpretation of it kind of changed? I think what I would say is I think that, I think that it's, it's a very special, I think it's a very special relationship that you have to your roots, uh, to your hometown and not, you know, not even just to your hometown, but even to, to, you know, everything that came before you, you know, your parents, your family, um, your parents' family, you know, they're, you know, both my parents are immigrants. My dad, uh, my dad's a Jew from the Soviet Union. My mom is, you know, my mom's from the Northeast of Brazil. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different homes that I have a relationship with, but I guess what I would say is as I've gotten older, um, I think that it's incumbent on you as an individual to, to maintain, um, the relationships with the homes that are important to you. And it's hard work. It's difficult. It's difficult work, you know, even, even just to keep in touch with, uh, you know, my sister and my two parents, it's something that I don't do as, as good of a job as I can. Um, but, but that I think that if, if you want to have, if you want to maintain those relationships, if you want to stay in touch with your roots and your history and your ancestry, um, I think you can do it, but it's, it's definitely not easy, you know, especially when we're all out here in the world, um, just trying to get ahead, trying to live our lives and pursue our careers and everything. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Um, and I you know you had mentioned like a mother's touch being about like your brother's suicide. And um, I thought, I think it's interesting, like the fact that it was in a very different like form, like on the live record as well. Um, what was it kind of like for you, I guess, being that like open and obviously it's like a, a really rough, emotionally like rough song. Um, what was it like for you kind of like being that open and also like both in the song as it appears on the album and kind of like bringing it in, bring it in with other people for like the live album. So, so for, first I would say that, um, you know, I, I, I started writing that song uh, as far as just the text of it, you know, what would eventually become the lyrics probably like the, the day after my brother killed himself. So I, I, I think I remember uh, writing down some ideas either on paper or, you know, in my, in my phone or whatever. And that, that was the, the raw text that ended up becoming the song. Uh, my, you know, my reason, my reason for seeing that song through to completion and recording and releasing it is, I guess I, I wanted to, I wanted to try to come to terms with the, you know, all the conflicted feelings I felt. Uh, as you know, as far as he was concerned, you know, my anger towards him, my guilt about the situation, you know, feeling responsible, um, you know, wondering who is to blame. It was he to blame. Am I to blame? Is my family to blame? 
you know, there's a lot of that contained in the song. Um, and as far as, you know, releasing it into the world, you know, when I moved to New York, um, no one knew me. So it was easy to just pretend that he never existed. And, you know, I've been in New York over six years now. And it's literally been up until now that I've even, you know, been comfortable to talk to people openly about this. Um, so, you know, releasing the song is definitely a way for me to more more in a in a, in in a in a more healthy way uh come to terms openly um with the world about what happened to him mm-hmm. uh as as far as far as the live album the the live version of it goes i guess what i what i would say about that is well let, let's put it this way the no no one who appeared on that recording mm-hmm. actually no, no one who rec- no one who appeared on the live recording of that song actually knows about him or or what happened to him or what the song is about so i guess i guess i would say that um i hope that i hope that the song is relatable enough that and i wrote it that way i wrote it to be relatable enough that people can read the emotion and the honesty in it even if they don't know my specific backstory that's part of it you're definitely like very strong for like like I said like putting that out there and I'm I'm sure I'm glad that it has helped you and I I think it will probably help other people as well who are either like dealing with the same similar situations and stuff like that um and I'm curious like like you mentioned it, like the live album it not kind of having the same backstory kind of as it does on or the same context I guess as it does on the album um how do you think that affected kind of like the way that either like you viewed the song or that like people now listening to like the finished version view it? Um, I, I would hope when people listen to the live version. So, you know, I, I think the, the studio version is very much, you know, a presentation of this whole story with all its different twists and turns. I hope that when people listen to the live version, um, I hope what they hear is, you know, a group of different musicians, each exchanging ideas and feelings off of each other within this one performance. So, you know, uh, the, the rapper Dare, who does the opening verse to that song, um, he, you know, he, he, he actually mentions his, he mentions his little brother in that verse. Um, so I, I think that he, he came to that with something personal and intimate to himself. And, uh, you know, I think that verse kind of talks about, um, just, you know, w- wanting, wanting to make people proud as a rapper, as a hip hop artist, and, you know, wanting to make your family proud. Uh, that, that's the vibe that I get from that verse. And then Mello, Mello, who does the, you know, the backing vocals and some of the lead vocals on that song. Um, I, I know, you know, I know that she's been through a lot of her own, uh, you know, hardships and challenges in her life and with her family. And, you know, I, I, I know that when I know that when she sang that song, again, she she didn't know what it meant to me, but I know that it meant something to her. Yeah, I think it's really cool, like the way that it can be like, open to interpretation that way. And that like the live version specifically is kind of like, a meeting of the minds and kind of like a melding of you, all these different people with these different experiences and how they kind of can connect to the similar feeling around it. Here we are at the mid-show shout out once again. This week, I'd like to highlight Edupunks, a podcast by Craig Vitamin. 
The show features interviews with educators, musicians, and everyday disruptors, talking about education, politics, DIY, community, music, and anything else you can think of. EduPunks recently came back from a hiatus with an episode featuring Josh Sear of The World is a Beautiful Place and I'm No Longer Afraid to Die, which is a great hopping on place for those new to the podcast. Each and every person Craig speaks to is unique and has something of value to offer to the listener and get them thinking, so I highly suggest you give it a shot. I always like to uh, ask as the last question, um, kind of either for just like a piece of advice or like something that you've been thinking about lately that you'd like to share either about like music specifically or just life in general. That's a big one. <laughs> okay. So I'll, I'll say this actually, which is something that has been on my mind a lot very recently. Um, you know, and, and I, I say this also as, as a, you know, a writer journalist um, focusing on drug policy and, you know, other issues like that. And as a musician, I think that as, as creators, as artists, as, you know, people that, that have a voice, you know, whether musically or otherwise, we have, I, I, I want us to recognize that we have power and we have influence and we have a say. Um, and because we have that power, we have to exercise it responsibly. And, you know, this is something that, this is something that I face every day as a writer. When, when I write a story about a topic, I know that what I choose not to say has, a, you know, just as much impact as what I do choose to say. And the people I don't speak to says just as much as the people I do choose to speak to for sources. Mm-hmm. And, and this, you know, the same, the same thing with music, um, who I choose to work with on a record or, you know, to put on an event or a show, um, you know, who, who I choose to reach out to in my audience, um, what I, what I choose to do as an artist, you know, you know, when, when you reach a a certain level of fame or notoriety, um, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say any names, but some, some people have disappointed me. Uh, we, we, we have, we have to use that power responsibly. And I think for every creator, that means something different for me. For me at this point, most recently, what that has meant is it's meant using my platform and using my voice um, to support people of color and to support, um, you know, low income people, people that uh, people that are suffering the most in this country, people that don't have housing, people that are discriminated, discriminated against by the police, people that are, you know, targeted um, in the criminal justice system, you know, just and and these are obviously the the issues that I, I tackle, you know, in my capacity as a drug writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I try to I try to bring that um, I, I try to I try to consider that in the music that I make as well. Um, so for for this for this event that we're doing in December, um, I really I want it to be a space um, where people of color can feel safe and where they can feel welcome. Um, and where they can feel engaged with, uh, you know, not, not just as audience members, but also as leaders, as, you know, people performing or people presenting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's what I'd say for right now. That, that's something that I'm trying to hold myself accountable to at the moment. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, that definitely speaks to me as well. It's something like I do always try to be like very thoughtful in the kind of like decisions I make and stuff. And like, even with this podcast, like I've always loved interviews because um, just like I would rather give the, the artists that I love a platform to speak about their music and like the messages that they want to promote than I would like, you know, filtering it through my lens and like writing a review and stuff like that. And like, and with this podcast, like I've, it's like an internal rule to myself that like there's no two episodes in a row that I'm going to have with like straight white cis men, um, like bands that are all that. Um, so, I mean, I think, yeah, I think just like the idea of kind of like having, making those decisions and kind of like, just being like kind of like present in the decisions that you're making instead of kind of just like going with the flow and stuff like that and like going with like the status quo and everything. I think that's like so important for sure. Um, so I think that's definitely like really good, uh, good advice. And, and you know, it, I, I just want to really quickly say also, it should be noted that to, to whatever extent that, you know, us as journalists or creators fail in those goals, it's not even necessarily, um, you know, because of bad intent or anything. I think mm -hmm. that, uh, I think that, you know, a lot of the times when you're working under deadlines or when, you know, when you're working under like external pressures to turn out work quickly and efficiently, mm -hmm. um, there, there's, a, you, I think you find yourself in a lot of situations where there, there's people who it's just easier to work with or easier to talk to. And, you know, a lot of times it's harder to do outreach and step outside of your comfort zone mm -hmm. so there you know that that's it's it's a it's a difficult balance for sure but it's just something for us to be conscious of and uh you know if anyone's in the new york area and um they want to come to the event it's going to be friday december 6th uh 8 p.m and they can just go to deathisabusiness.com and i'll i'll make sure that the event link and the flyer is there for them the end is near the interview has wrapped up and i'll keep this outro brief if you enjoyed this conversation, please check out the new Death is a Business album, Not Infinite, as well as their very different but very cool live acoustic album from last year. And if you're in the New York area, the band's Loud Music, Loud Politics, Loud Weed event sounds like it'll be an awesome time. Thanks so much to Alex for taking the time to chat, and to you for taking the time to listen. A special thank you as always to The Alternative for helping to promote the show, Kaylin West of Tiny Stills for the theme song, and Michaela Jane Palermo for the artwork. You can keep up to date by subscribing to the podcast and following the show on Twitter and Instagram at FlyOnTheCallPod. Each Monday, I post a hint at that week's guest, and if you're the first one to guess it right, you'll get to hear the episode early. Feel free to email any questions, comments, or other feedback to me at FlyOnTheCallPod at gmail.com. Catch you all on the flip flip. Fly on the call. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.